0: Hey Mosaic family, we're so glad you're here to worship with us today! If you're new to Mosaic, we are especially glad that you're here with us. As a church, Mosaic exists to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the Word of God. If you'd like more information about our vision, if you'd like to get connected to the life of our church through community groups, or if you'd like to find an opportunity to serve, you can text the word Mosaic to 97000 and we'll follow up with you this week. Just as a reminder, our fall schedule has officially begun. Our next event will be our annual Fall Fest on Sunday, October 30th at 6 p.m. It will be a time for fun, fellowship, and fall stuff out in the backyard. Tad will give more specifics on this before his sermon today, and we'll have all of the info he shares up on social media and the Church Center app next week. It was a really great time of togetherness last year, so we're looking forward to it again this year. And now, as we get ready to worship through singing, as always, we just want to remind you that children are always welcome with us in service. However, we do have a kids' ministry for kids birth through fifth grade where they will have a time of worship and gospel-centered Bible teaching that is age-appropriate. We also have a nursing mother's room just outside the lobby should little ones get hungry or restless. Again, we're glad you're here with us today. Let's worship Jesus together.
1: Hey, good morning. Good morning. My name is Tad Anderson. I am the lead teaching pastor at Mosaic Church. On behalf of our church, we are glad you're here. Uh, as my wife said in her awesome welcome video this morning, so thanks for joining us to worship Jesus. Uh, and uh, before I get into anything else, I want to invite Matt Davidson up here with me. Uh, as some of you know, Matt, uh, we recently were able to send Matt on a trip to uh, Mumbai, India, where we actually uh, support... Uh, a church planter there, whose name is Asram Kamble. We've supported him for a long time, man, like eight eight years or something like that. So uh, anyway, he's a church planter there in Mumbai in the state of Maharashtra and plants many uh, house churches and sees the gospel go forward in a lot of awesome ways. Matt's gonna share with us what he saw while he was there. So Matt.
2: Well, thanks, Ted. Um, Like Ted said, my name is Matt Davidson. I'm the student leader here and I also uh, had the opportunity to go to India Um, I just got back, but I I, uh, got pretty sick while I was over there, actually ended up in the ER, so the trip did not uh, go nearly as planned, but it was according to the Lord's plans entirely. Uh, So my hope was to do different um, filming or pictures or something like that, just to give us an idea of what's going on over there, but none of that happened, because I got sick Like before half the trip was even underway, I got sick, and then it progressively got worse until I went to the ER. So I didn't get to do anything that I wanted, but thankfully, Osram did a video that we'll show in a second for us. Um, but I just wanted to share some of the biggest things that I noticed over there. Um, and Tad asked me to be brief, but that's probably not going to happen because I have a lot, to, a lot that I wanted to share with you guys. Uh, <laughs> um, the first thing is that I saw a dependence upon God rather than a, a dependence upon structures and systems. I mean, we depend so much on our church structures, our church systems. And these are brothers and sisters that are literally just living to the next meeting place. They're a wandering church that doesn't have a place that they get to call home. They're trying to communicate through like WhatsApp and like, hey, we're meeting here this week. Like, and hundreds of people are showing up still. Like, It blew my mind that that's what the church is doing over there. There's such a dependence upon God and not a dependence upon their church structures or their church systems. Um, everyone's testimony over there was this person invited me or this person shared the gospel with me on my doorstep I confessed Christ, and then I shared the gospel with my family, and now my whole family's here, and now our relatives are here. Like, that was the testimony of every person in the church that we met, and it's so different than what we hear here. I mean, we we find a church online, and then that's how we attend, or we just know we should go to church, so we do because it's a morally right thing. It's so different over there, Um, and I'm also saying that, like... Um, rhetorically. It's not, it's not really just a moral thing to do. It's, it's what God calls us to, and we should trust the Lord and be faithful to attend church. Uh, it's just so different over there. Um, what I also saw was not just leadership or pastors fulfilling the Great Commission. I saw the people fulfilling the Great Commission. The people of the church were sharing the gospel just as much as the church leadership was. I mean, there were stories of, like I said, like I shared the gospel with my family, and now my whole family's here. We shared it with our neighbors. Now our neighbors are here. I mean, Their church was large in number, but they were deep in obedience to what God was calling them to. In the face of opposition, I mean, the Hindu state, I mean, we were, our visas literally said, if you're here for missionary work, you will be arrested, if that's what it's like found out. And I was like, great, this is what what we're crossing the border with right now, right? Uh, But they're still sharing the gospel moving forward. Um, Their worship was absolutely dynamite. I mean, I don't really have another way to say it. I have no idea what they were saying every song. Um... But I could hear their hearts for the Lord, and they were the loudest people I've ever heard for Christ, ever. I mean, I've, ne- I've never, from the groups of 30 people that we had to 20 people that we had to the groups of almost 200 that we had. And uh, one room that's probably smaller than, like, our dining room, there was 100 and something people that we counted in there. Um, and, like, our average dining rooms, that was their church service in, like, a really impoverished area that we had. It was stinky. Um, and I don't know how they meet there every, every week, uh, but they're doing it. And they were the loudest, joyful people I've ever heard, uh, even in the midst of so much poverty. Um, I saw them giving out of their poverty. I mean, guys, the, the poverty over there was heartbreaking. I mean, there's people sleeping on the sidewalks, groaning and, and moaning and crying for food. Uh, not just beggars, like people literally who are living in what's called slums sleeping on the sidewalk every night and sleeping under bridges, bridge and in, in bridges in trash, like in, in mud and in, like, very gross conditions. And those people are still trying to attend church service, and they're thankful for what God has done for them. Like, it has it, it been so, um, so eye-opening. And guys, honestly, and I see these people giving out of their poverty, and we struggle to give out of our, our abundance that we have. Um, they were. I, I probably saw it, and I didn't even realize that there was probably like a widow and Tumina's story happening, where someone was giving all that they had that week to the church, and they were just going to trust God with it. And we struggle to give out of our obedience. We struggle to meet our budget, that is honestly a bare bones budget. That's like the bottom of the line that that really keeps the church running. And and they're giving out of their poverty, and we struggle to give out of our abundance. Um, And uh, not to mention, they're literally risking it all to meet together for the sake of the gospel. So the first day, day one that I was there, uh, Osram was sharing, like, yeah, just a few days ago, we had um, one of the pastors and one of the church members, they went out to a village and they started sharing the gospel. Um, And then they were captured by Hindu extremists who did not want to tolerate Christianity. They captured and beat the people. And then Osram was like, but they're back out there sharing the gospel. And I struggle to share the gospel with my neighbors, (laughs) I struggle to knock on their door and tell them about Christ or invite them over for dinner and have gospel-centered conversations with them. But these brothers and sisters are willing to knock on someone's door and get beaten for it just to share the gospel because they believe it so much. Um, so honestly, what I've realized coming back here, it's actually been kind of hard to come back and transition back. Not to, I mean, I was thankful that I'm no longer in an Indian ER because that was not a fun experience. But uh, it's been hard to, to transition back into American comforts after li- seeing and living in such desperation for God over there and not desperation for American comforts. Um, But I've realized and what I've been asking myself is what are we doing here? What are we doing here? And I don't just mean like what are the tangible works that we can praise ourselves for or that we can pat ourselves on the back for, but like what are our hearts doing in response to the gospel compared to um, what they're doing over there? Why aren't our stories like theirs where everyone in here is because they've never heard the gospel before and we shared it with them and our church is growing in number because the body is being faithful to do the work that Christ calls us to. Um, I just, Why are we not going out of our ways to share the gospel in the ways that I hear these brothers and sisters and saw these brothers and sisters doing over there? Um, why are we struggling so much to meet our bare bones budget when the church in India is giving out of their poverty? Why is our comfort and dependence upon structures and church systems cause us to be so casual about our Christianity when they're living radically for Christianity when it costs them everything? It will cost them everything over there. While India's nothingness is causing them to cry out to God more. They have nothing, and so they're crying out to God more, but we have everything, and so I think it causes us to cry out to God less. Um, I mean, my fear is that I will have seen all of this, and I will share all this with you, and we will move on next week and do absolutely nothing about it. That's my fear. For myself, I'm not saying that to you, church. I'm say- I'm- I am saying that to you, church, but I'm-, I'm saying it to myself first. I fear that after everything that I saw and as moved as I've been, and as broken as I've been of what I've seen over there, I will come back and nothing will change in my life. I will do nothing different. That is, that is the, the struggle that we all will, will get sucked into. Um, and just to be clear, there is no such thing as a casual, uncomfortable Christianity. I said that that's what I'm afraid to come back into, but that doesn't exist. It's not what the Bible teaches. Um, we're either living for Christ radically or we're not living for Christ. Um, and so I was grateful to get to witness the example Oserum that Tad was talking about. Oserum Comble is... An amazing man who loves the Lord so much and was so humbling just to be around him and talk to him. And, and he, like here I am, you know, 25-year-old youth pastor for like a year now, you know, like, and he's, he's asking me like, hey, what do you guys do in your church? And I'm like, dude, I should be asking you what you're doing like for like the thousands of people that you're baptizing every year. Um, but this man loves the Lord. For, for starters, one day that I, day one that I met with him, we sat down in our hotel room and he was just sharing his vision for Manahastra, the state of uh, state in India that he lives in and he had tears in his eyes talking about his love for the Christ and wanting to see the lost saved in his state, and I asked why with our neighbors, with the impoverished people that we've done the Thanksgiving outreach for, why don't we have tears in our eyes over the lost being saved there? And he's not the only one. Osram is not the only one. It's not just because he's a ministry official that he is that way. His church is that way. His body, the body of people that are meeting together, are, are passionate for seeing the law saved in their state. So one day I asked Oseram, what does a normal day look like for you? Like, what do you normally do? What does your free time look like? And so he gave me the most exhaustive answer that I was actually really proud, uh, proud to receive, but he gave me a very exhaustive answer, and he was saying, well, I wake up at 6.30, and I was like, oh, I'm getting, like, the whole rundown, like, from the moment you wake up <laughs> to the, when you go to sleep. Um, but uh, he was walking through, hey, I wake up at 6.30, I spend like two hours in the Word and prayer, um, then I get up and I have breakfast, I go to work, and then from like 10 to 5, he spends time just training his church members and teaching, um, and like the pastors and stuff, and doing some sort of organized church function. Um, and then after that, what, this is what started to surprise me, I was curious about his free time, like what do you do after the workday is over? Usually from 5 to 7, he spends time doing some sort of missions with his family or evangelizing, going out on street corners and preaching the gospel, um, and that's how they spend their free time. Uh, he comes home, and he helps his kids with work, they ha- or with homework. They have dinner, and then um, he puts the kids to bed, he said, and then him and his wife will maybe watch 30 minutes of the news just to keep up on what's going on in their state, um, and then they'll spend more time in the Word and go to bed at 11, and they repeat every day. And, and it wasn't just like, oh, you're just telling me that you do that. I saw it. That was how this man was living his life, not just to like, do it because us American people are here like with him. Like, he clearly was out there on the street corners enough because people knew him, and everyone's saying hey to him. Everyone knows that he's there. Um, so he truly uh, is doing what he says, and it, just, it really had just um, made me want to share this with you guys for two reasons. One, not that just he's in a ministry role uh, that I'm, I'm sharing this that we're convicted because we can kind of compare ourselves. Well, he's a pastor. Of course, he's doing a life like that. Um, but I saw his heart for the Lord. Um, And second, I think that we need to learn a lesson of devotion from a man like this. I think that we need to learn, because his church members are replicating what he's doing over there. Um, Nearly all of his free time, his non-ministry time, his non-ministry hours was devoted to the Great Commission going forward. And I fear that my life doesn't look that way and our lives as a church doesn't look that way. But guys, Jesus calls us for our lives to look that way. It's not like an option that we just get to coast in our comfortable American lives. Um, it, it truly is a call to come and die to self, follow after Christ and do what Christ did and spend life on ministry and even in our jobs and in our neighbors and our sports teams and all the things, like to start viewing it as an opportunity for mission and to share the gospel here into the nations. Um, and so I would just encourage that uh, the church over there, the body of the church over there looked closer to the church of Acts that we can read in the book of Acts that I've ever seen here in this states. I've never seen such a close picture of people truly living for the things that we see the early church living for in the book of Acts. And so really what I wanted to bring back um, was just for us to consider these things that, that they don't have the decades of This is what our church does, and this is how the worship needs to be, and this is how the lights need to be, and this is the technology that we have. They're a baby church by our standards, and they look so much closer to the church in Acts than we ever have, and it makes me wonder, well, which one's right, the one that's closer to the Bible or the one that's further from the Bible? Um, And I'm not saying that we need to meet in a smelly room that's the size of our dining rooms and all hundred people cram in there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I just, I just really wanted to to come back and share with you guys, um, how, how the church looks over there. And I think, I think that we are coasting in a way that I see in my life and it scares me. It scared me before I left, but it scares me more now that I'm back and I've seen it over there. Um, how, how we're just coasting in a direction that I think is off from what the church really looks like in the world, um. They are, they are living like the church in Acts, And so I just, um, I, I wish, I have some pictures and some videos that maybe I'll try to get posted at some point and maybe, maybe we can share. Uh, but you'll just see the poverty that it is over there. And it's, it's really moving that they're still living so faithfully for the gospel. So, uh, Osram awesome has a video that he wanted to share with us just um, while I was sick. So we'll go ahead and put that on. And that's all I've got. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.
3: Thank you so much, Mosaic Church. Mosaic Church is my first church, they start supporting my family and ministry. I love the Mosaic Church. Thank you so much, Pastor, Dad, Sister Amy, and all Mosaic congregation. Thank you so much for your love, for your prayer, for your support. And especially thank you for sending Brother Math mission trip in India, in Mumbai. Brother Mab is a very good teacher. He gave lots of inspiration to my family. He gave good teaching to our Bible college students. And he teach in our family seminar. And he gave good training to all pastors and missionaries in the village. So, thank you for sending Brother Matt in Mumbai. So, Brother Matt's heart for teaching. He knows so many Bible verses. He knows the Bible ideas. He know the Bible stories he know the very well Bible study and always he encouraging me as you read this Bible. the Bible say Paul say and he, every time he discussing with me about the Bible thank you he's sending the right person to the right mission tree. so uh, but I'm very sad to the you are sick here and we pray for him and really now he's okay. Thank you. thank you. Thank you for your prayer for Brother Matt. And Mosaic Church, I especially thank you for your support, love, Pastor, a Dad, Sister Amy, and congregation. Thank you so much. Please continue to pray for us, pray for my family, pray for ministry. Please pray for God save my state, India. Thank you so much, Mosaic Church. Yes. Thank you.
1: Thank you. All right. We should just do an altar call now, right? I think after that. <laughs> So now I gotta preach. Okay, um, well, hey, so we're gonna have a fall fest coming up. (laughs) Should be like a repentance fest, maybe. We'll add that to the list of things. Um, but as Amy said, it will be the same as last year. It is going to be on uh, Sunday, October 30th. Uh, we're probably going to do a chili cook off. That was really good last year. Play some games. Um, maybe have some s'mores and other fallish stuff that we think of between now and then. Uh, as a church, we definitely value worship, we value Bible teaching, uh, we value discipleship. Obviously, we value missions, uh, but we also do value fun. And enjoying one another's company, just because we believe friendship among uh, the body of Christ is a great gift for our joy, and so that's what we're going to do on Sunday, October thirtieth at six p.m. All right, so make sure you make plans to be there uh, with us. All right, let's uh, let's dive back into Romans eight. If you're just now joining us, we are a church. That teaches the Bible expositionally, which basically means that we teach uh, through books of the Bible systematically in order to teach what the Bible teaches. Go figure. Um, and some churches don't do that. But anyway, in this series, we have done uh, a deep dive into Romans 8, which we have affectionately, affectionately titled uh, the best chapter of the Bible. Because in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul paints this amazing picture of the life of the believer in Christ from the perspective of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, we're now on week 9 of 12, so we're nearing the end. But as we'll see, Paul is not winding down here. He's continuing to build up more and more good news for all who are believers in Christ by the work of the Spirit. And uh, the past several weeks, we've been uh, in a discussion uh, regarding the reality of suffering in a broken world, uh, but that does not mean that the tone of uh, the sermons have been a discouraging tone. It's actually been uh, incredibly encouraging to think through the reality that as Paul says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us, and that uh, as we realize our our weakness in the flesh, the Spirit actually uses that weakness as the perfect opportunity to help us and strengthen us to live joyful lives despite our suffering for the glory of God. And today we're just going to talk about one verse, uh, Romans 8.28. As I was preparing, I I did listen to what (laughs) uh, several other Bible teachers said on this verse. One in particular said, he he said, I wish wish I could just read the verse and then sit down uh, because it really just speaks for itself. I I feel that way today because this is perhaps one of the most beloved and memorized Bible verses of all time up there with John 3.16. Uh, but you came here in part for a sermon, so I'm going to give it my best shot. Uh, so as is our custom, let's go ahead and read the verse in its context, and we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Romans eight, let's pick it up at verse 18. It says, "For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved." that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Father, you are good. And so we come to you with thanksgiving for how you have blessed us with too many good things to enumerate on, but primarily you have given us the knowledge of yourself through both your written word and your incarnate word, your Son, Jesus. And so, God, I pray that Jesus would be exalted today through this message, that his gospel would be clear and compelling, and that it would be the clear basis in our minds for why we receive so much grace and mercy, and that we would see the connection between this reality and the beautiful promises of Romans 8.28. And for those who may be struggling today, I pray that they would cling to the hope of Romans 8.28 and the reality of your loving sovereignty over every single aspect of our lives. We love you, Lord. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Well, I'd like to frame our discussion on verse 28 this morning with a popular cultural uh, question, maybe expression, Uh, Because I think that answering the question biblically will uh, help us to see the doctrinal underpinnings of Romans 8.28. This particular question is really just how many people uh, outside the church, or perhaps even those who are new to the Christian faith, articulate the tension between two realities. That on one hand, God is good, and on the other hand, life is hard. Okay? So here's the question. It's right there in your notes if you're following along. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? It's likely that many of us in this room have had this question come to our minds in the midst of a painful situation uh, that we've heard about regarding someone who we know personally and we really respect or, or maybe just an acquaintance who we know is highly thought of by their friends and family and Colleagues and so forth, and maybe a, a terrible accident or a, or a tragic medical diagnosis that leaves everyone reeling and grasping for what to even say because there are just no words that would be adequate or helpful in those moments. And so, usually, we don't even get the whole question out. Uh, we all know what we're asking when all that will come out is why, why. And before I move on, I just want to say that. I've not written this sermon primarily to address the person who's currently in the midst of the moment of grief. When someone is in the midst of great pain, theological principles are not what they need most from us. They just need the presence of people who love them and who are willing to sit with them and say very little. And so uh, the way I'm going to talk this morning is not a prescription of what you should say necessarily to someone who is suffering or grieving It's a discourse on how we, as God's people, interpret suffering through the lens of Scripture. And one more clarification I'll make is this. While I am going to get into a few practical reasons that I think the Bible gives for the presence of suffering, in no way am I attempting to put myself in the position of God and attempting to diagnose why He has allowed suffering in any particular person's life. If you've read the book of Job you know that's a dangerous practice to get into, to presume to know why God allows what he allows in people's lives. Usually that's something that he graciously reveals to the individual who has suffered after they've navigated their suffering. And so I'm not here to diagnose the root reasons for anyone's individual suffering. I'm just here with Romans 8.28 and some supporting text to hopefully expound in a helpful way on the general why of human suffering all right so uh, the, the first thing Paul says in verse 28 of Romans 8 is we know we know it would be easy to pass over these words but I, I want to emphasize them because on this side of eternity there are a lot of things that we don't know and we may never know until glory but God by giving us the gift of his word has expressed his desire to communicate with us on a need-to-know basis, okay? That is, if we need to know it, he has already said it. And now the ball is in our court to seek it out. I think a lot of people um, think all they have to do in order to hear from God is they just need to pray and then expect to hear something from God in prayer in some mystical osmosis kind of way when they're totally detached from and not reading his word okay but that's not how it works that's not how it works second peter 1 verse 3 tells us that god has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory. How does that work? Well, we find out in 2 Timothy 3. It says all scripture There it is. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped <clears throat> for every good work. So when Paul starts off by saying in 8:28, we know he's saying I'm not telling you something new here. Okay? not telling you something new this is well established i'm just reminding you of what god has already said and thus we should know okay so paul says we know that for those who love god all things work together let's stop there here's why i wanted to answer the question of why do bad things happen to good people <clears throat> because when paul says all things technically what he's saying is get this, all things, okay? He says all things, that means all things. There's no special meaning to that phrase in the original language. He's talking about everything that happens. But the reason he's saying all things work together is not because we have a hard time with the good things that happen in life, right? When things go well, We don't find ourselves internally agonizing over why, do we? No. When something goes well, we're usually glad and we move on, oftentimes without even acknowledging God. That was Matt's sermon. But it's the bad things that happen that we struggle with. Right? Right. Thank you, Robert. So before we get to what the text most plainly says... We should know. I want to answer the question of why do bad things happen to good people? Because as Christians, we know the answer to that. We know the answer. The answer is that bad things never happen to good people. Bad things never happen to good people because there are no good people. Only sinful people who deserve divine punishment. Now I don't say this as a gotcha, or to be unnecessarily harsh regarding an already sensitive topic, truly. This is just what the Bible teaches. This is a biblical reality that we see from Genesis all the way through to Revelation that all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans chapter 3. God's design for us was indeed a good design. Scripture is abundantly clear. We have all departed from that good design. And as a result, instead of being good people who always and only obey God, that would be the definition of a good person, we've all become bad people who often disregard and disobey God. Anybody here willing to say they're not a sinner? Raise your hand on that. The Apostle John says, if anyone says that he has not sinned, he makes God out to be a liar. Let me translate that. God says we're all sinners. So if any of us claim to not be a sinner, then we are in fact saying that God is a sinner because he's lying about us. This tough reality about the badness of our sinful nature, it goes all the way back to Genesis In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness, that is the badness, of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, that is bad, continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That's how bad human sin is. That's a brutal assessment, isn't it? That's a brutal assessment. Now, I am not asking you to enjoy this. Okay? I'm just asking you to accept it as biblical. Okay? It's like when we give our kids green vegetables at dinner. We're not asking them to enjoy them. We're asking them to eat them. Right? Why? Because vegetables are good for you. Likewise, biblical truth is good for us. Even the truth about our sin, the badness of our hearts, and the divine punishment that we all deserve. It's not the tastiest biblical morsel to choke down, is it? <laughs> but it makes us healthy. Okay. Jesus himself actually reiterates the same truth in a situation in Mark's gospel. Uh, maybe you know about it. A very rich and very moralistic man approaches Jesus, and he addresses Jesus... As good teacher. So Jesus, true to form, he reads this guy like a book. And he replies, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. Historically speaking, this is perhaps the origination of the Jesus Duke. Okay? Um, <laughs> because instead of answering this guy's question, he just goes straight to correcting the heart issue. The rich young man is under the illusion that it's possible for him to be good enough to earn eternal life. And he sees Jesus not as God in human flesh, but as a mere good teacher. And so Jesus just goes ahead and lays the truth out for him. If there is no such thing as a good person, and for that matter, a good teacher, because scripturally speaking, the only one who is good is God. Okay. Now, I could point to countless other references to reiterate this point, though I don't think it's necessary, uh, and for sake of time, I won't do that. Bad things never actually happen to good people because there are no good people, only sinful people who deserve divine punishment. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that all bad things that happen in life are God's punishment on particular sins. Okay, I'm not saying that. I don't have time to get into this, but scripturally, we know that that's not true. Okay, we've actually preached on that in this series already. What I want for you to come away from this first point realizing is that the big question, okay, the big question about bad things that happen in life should not be why do bad things happen to good people, okay? But when we rightly consider the reality of human sin, our question should be the opposite. Why do good things happen to bad people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Considering that our hearts are as sinful as the Bible consistently says that they are, why do we experience anything good at all? Why isn't everything bad all the time? The answer to that is that God is incredibly, incredibly gracious. Okay? Our sin deserves judgment. The Apostle Paul says in Romans, and the wages for sin is death. And so that's what we deserve, right? Not, not just physical death, but eternal spiritual death, separation from God and everything good forever. That's what we deserve. And yet God continues to allow sinful people to go on experiencing all manner of good things in life family vacations, baseball games. Mexican food, friendship, pumpkin spice lattes. Maybe that's controversial. So maybe I should use the list given to us by the cultural theologian, Zach Brown. A little bit of chicken fried, a cold beer on a Friday night, or a Diet Coke, since we're good Baptists. Pair of jeans that fit just right, the radio up, the sunrise, the love in a woman's eyes, a touch of a precious child, a mother's love. Why do we get to experience all of these beautiful, amazing, joy-inducing things? Why? Considering what we deserve, why is it that the psalmist says, God does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. Why do good things happen To bad people? The answer to this question to be exact is the gospel. The gospel. The gospel can be summed up very plainly using the terms, these simplistic terms we've already been using this morning. Good things, bad things, good people, bad people. The message of the gospel is this. God has taken the worst possible thing upon himself so that he can lovingly shower the best possible things on bad people. This is the gospel. This is the message of all of scripture. This is the most amazing news that I never get tired of telling you. That's why I tell you every week that while we were all bad people with no defense for the wicked, disobedient lives that we all once lived, Jesus Christ, who is God himself, took on human flesh and lived among humanity, not only to tell us what God is like, but to show us. And the pinnacle display of the love of God Jesus laid down his life by allowing himself to be crucified on a Roman cross. And he didn't just die. He died in the most inhumane, uncomfortable, and demoralizing way imaginable so that he could pay the full penalty for all of our sin. And get this. On the cross an incredible exchange took place. Jesus not only took our sin on himself, he gave his perfect righteousness to us. So while we were the ones who deserved to stand before the wrath of God, don't miss this, Jesus stood before the judgment of God as if he were bad like us, so that we, who are actually bad, can now stand before God as though we are perfectly good, like Jesus." <laughs> Second Corinthians 8: "For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. This is the great gospel exchange, and it's why good things happen to bad people. If you're here today and you haven't yet decided to really follow Jesus, I would just make the appeal to you that all of the good things in your life come to you by the grace of God alone. The grace of God alone. The reason that he has been so kind to you, though you have totally disregarded him, is because his desire is that his kindness would lead you to repentance. That you would realize how incredibly good he is to undeserving sinners. And that you would turn in faith to Christ. So the good things that you experience in this life will not be the end of the good things that you receive from God, but the beginning. That you might receive by faith the best possible thing, which is salvation and eternal life. God is in the business of giving good things to bad people. So if you realize that you're as bad as the rest of us, Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. We're glad you're here. And we sincerely hope that you will receive the good gift of the gospel, which is freedom from condemnation and adoption into the family of God. Amen. Now, for those who still have their Bibles open in Romans 8.28, you're like, okay, great. What about the rest of the verse? Well, here's the rest of the verse. Let's read it again. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So first of all, the way this relates to the rest of Romans 8 and the work of the Spirit is this, for those who love God, that describe anybody in here? It's okay, you can raise your hand this time. For those who love God, okay, a few of us, that's good, that's good, okay. What Paul has been telling us is that if you love God, that is not something that came naturally to you. That was the divine work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You were dead in your sin, and he came along out of nowhere and made you alive in Christ. That's how this whole thing happened. We were all once bad people, but the Holy Spirit showed up. He opened our eyes to the gospel, and he took a hold of us, and he made us into God's people. Okay, Uh, We were people who used to love sin, Right? The Holy Spirit said, hey, sin's stupid, and it's going to kill you, right? So you love God now, okay? And we said, sounds legit, okay, (laughs) right? So we repented of our sin, and we started following Jesus. But when we did that, here's what we probably didn't realize. When we started following Jesus, we became part of something way bigger than ourselves, okay? Okay? From Genesis 3, God has been moving all of history along towards redemption. When he's going to fix all that's broken in the world, he's going to make all things gloriously new. And so you see, the process of making all things new has already begun. God's redemptive plan was like a mighty river that was already flowing towards redemption. Okay, The Holy Spirit just pulled us into the current. That's what happened to us. And so, yes, the entire cosmos, the thing we renovated when all the effects of sin are vanquished and Jesus returns. But the thing that Jesus is making new first is us. Okay? It's us, his people, you and me. We talked about this a few weeks back. Jesus is making us new people with new privileges and new priorities and new power, if you remember that. Same concept. And so here's what Paul is saying in verse 28. Not only has God taken the worst possible thing upon himself so that he can lovingly shower the best possible things on us, but also in his sovereignty, God has ensured that even the bad things that befall his people serve as a means to the end of their ultimate good. Right? (laughs) <laughs> amazing. Now please hear me. I'm not saying that all the bad things that happen to us are actually good. That would be a, a warping of this text. Some of us have experienced terrible things, gut-wrenching loss, soul-numbing abuse, awful painful effects of sin, the sin of others, the sin of a, uh, just a marred world. The message of Romans 8.28 is not a minimization or a making light of the pain of human suffering. What Romans eight twenty eight is saying is that now that you are in Christ, there is nothing that can happen to you that will not ultimately help you along in the process of becoming more like Christ. Yeah. God is not out to hurt you, but now God has ordained that even the things that do hurt you will actually help you. Are you following me? Because God is in sovereign control over everything that transpires in his universe, there is nothing that comes to you that has not first passed through his loving hands. Okay? All things, all things, even suffering, are working together for your good. Do you realize the implications of this? This means that regardless of what any of us may be going through right now, everything that we go through is actually the most loving thing for God to be allowing into our life at that moment. You tracking with that? Because whatever it is, as painful as it may be, God would not be allowing it if it were not ultimately for your good. And God's desire for all who love him is their greatest possible good. This is an amazing truth that radically reframes our suffering in this life. Not only is all of our suffering light and momentary in the view of eternity, but every single bit of it is 100% meaningful. Meaningful. Nothing happens to you. If you're in Christ, okay, if you're a Christian, nothing happens to you for no reason. Nothing happens to you for no reason. God is working it all out for your good because he loves you. He loves you because you're in Christ by the Spirit. And as Paul said in the beginning of the verse, for those who have been reading the Old Testament, this is not a new concept. We know this. If you know the story of Joseph, trust that many of you have read that in your kids' Bibles, you know. That guy had a rough life. Okay? You having a rough week, friend? Rough month? The whole year? Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery and told everybody that he was dead. So... um, It's about as rough as it gets. Yeah, it is tough. Thank you. Now, God does eventually turn it around when he's older. Okay, But he lives this long season of his young life in slavery. And at one point, it gets worse than that. He actually gets thrown in prison for something he didn't even do. But anyway, at the end of all that, God helps Joseph to become a very powerful man. And in God's providence, Joseph re-encounters his brother's. Who come to him asking for help, not realizing who he, who he is, right? Well, well, well. <laughs> How the turntables, right? I couldn't help that office reference. All right. So his brothers show up needing his help. Long story short, he tells them it's him and they freak out because They think he's going to have them killed for the awful things that they have done to him so many years ago. But listen to his response in Genesis 50. He says, "Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good." (laughs) You so you see, this is a biblical principle that has been well known by God's people since the very beginning. In His sovereignty, God has ensured that even the bad things that befall His people serve as a means to the end. Of their ultimate good. As we close today, I just want to want you to consider with me three ways that God actually uses bad things for our good. Again, I'm I'm not saying I know exactly why you're going through what you're going through if you're going through something, but I think we see in Scripture at least these three as prominent, three ways God uses bad things for our good. The first way God sometimes uses bad things for our good is to mature our faith from self-generated propriety to God-given sufficiency. Taking these terms from an author named Dallas Willard who wrote about them in his book on Psalm 23 called The Life Without Lack. Listen to what he says. He says, The faith of propriety is the faith that believes for those who do good, God will be pleased with them, provide for them, and protect them. He says, One of the things that you find in people who have not suffered much is their tendency to believe in propriety. But when they have the sawdust knocked out of them a few times, they lose their great faith in propriety. They go through a painful process and come to understand how the blessing of God goes well beyond failure, disappointment, and tragedy. You see, God is gracious to grow us and mature us out of a simplistic faith of propriety, and He does it through suffering. God allows us to suffer so that we will realize that he's not only a God who can be trusted when things go well, but he's a God who can be trusted when everything falls apart. Okay, I already mentioned Job earlier, but in the Old Testament book of Job, Job is a godly man who has it all, and God allows him to lose everything. And in his agony, in the midst of suffering, listen to what Job says about God. He says, Though he slay me, I will trust him. Though he slay me, I will trust him. In other words, though it feels like God is killing me with the painful circumstances he's allowing into my life, I'm still going to put all my hope in him. This is the faith of sufficiency. This is mature faith. This is not... Fair-weather faith that says, as long as God keeps giving me all the things I want in life, then I'll keep trusting him. This is faith that says, no matter what I experience in this life, I will continue to believe that God is good, and that even the most painful things that he allows to come across my path will actually work out, not for my harm, but for my benefit. Though he slay me, I will trust him. Sometimes God allows us to suffer in order to mature our faith from self-generated propriety to God-given sufficiency. So that as it says in James chapter 1, we can count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Because we know the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness helps us to see that if we have Jesus, we have everything that we need. His grace is sufficient for us. So that's the first way God works bad things out for our good. The second reason God sometimes allows bad things into our lives is in order to rid our lives of idolatry. (laughs) Have I told you guys recently how much I love my kids? I really love my kids. I love my kids so much that I will take anything away from them that I think might be hurting them. Here's a for instance. We let our kids have various forms of technology, TV, video games, iPad, etc., with boundaries, okay? But if I perceive that my kids start to care more about engaging with technology than they care about engaging with the Lord, I would rather karate chop that $600 TV into the garbage can <laughs> than allow my kids to be led astray from Christ. Because Disney Channel and Fortnite and Facebook Messenger, I know you hear me, parents, are not more important than their souls. And God will do the same thing with us. If you're in Christ and you have some idol in your life, Even if you've made an idol out of a good thing, because we do that. We're messed up. We make idols out of good things. Family, finances, health. God will pry that idol out of your hands if he has to. God will pry that idol out of your hands if he has to. I'm a Jacksonville Jaguars fan, not by choice, but by fate. I was born and raised in Jacksonville. Last week, the Jaguars were playing in the rain. And so it seemed like every time somebody got hit, the ball would slip out of their hands. There were so many fumbles, it was awful. Anyway, sometimes God allows us to get hit hard by something heavy. So that we will release our grip. On something that is not him. Not because he likes to see us in pain. But because he loves us too much to allow us to exchange him for an idol that he knows is going to let us down. In the Old Testament, God's people were led astray into idolatry. And so God sent prophets to them to warn them over and over, and over, and over, and over, and over again. If you've read the Old Testament, that's constant warning about idolatry. So finally, God said, Look, if you won't tear these idols down and redevote yourselves to me, then I will tear them down for you. I will tear your kingdom down and allow you to be overtaken by your enemies so that you will be forced to renounce your idols and realize your need for me. That's exactly what God wound up having to do. God did not send his people into exile because he's a big meanie. He sent his people into exile because he loved them. And in Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah spoke for Israel when he penned these words. He said, remember my affliction and my wanderings. The wormwood and the gall, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he caused grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Translation, God has allowed us to experience these bad things to rid us of our idolatry because he loves us. Just because he disciplines us does not mean that he does not love us. In fact, God's discipline is a form of his love. Discipline hurts. It feels painful, not pleasant, but it's for our good. Author Philip Keller explains in one of his books that when one of his sheep was particularly prone to wander, a shepherd would actually use his staff to intentionally break the front legs of the sheep. Then he would carefully dress the legs, lift the sheep over his shoulders, and carry them around everywhere he went until those legs were healed. During this time... It could last for weeks. The sheep would naturally form a strong bond with the shepherd and become intimately familiar with the shepherd's voice. Once healed, the sheep would rarely leave the side of his shepherd, not because he was afraid of the shepherd, but because he had grown to understand that beside the shepherd was always where the greatest provision and safety were found. God will sometimes operate this way with his children. He loves us so much. If we start to wander and we get tangled up in idolatry, he will use painful circumstances, bad things to discipline us and drive us back into his arms so that we won't wander away again. That's the second way that we know God uses bad things for our good. And finally, number three, God allows bad things into our lives in order to set us up for something better. Okay, We saw this with Joseph, right? There was no way for Joseph to know what in the world God was doing when he allowed him to be sold into slavery by his brothers. But we find out in the end of that story that the bad things had to transpire first in order to get to the better things in the end when Joseph was able to use his position to save his entire family out of famine. The truth is, the story of Joseph is actually a foreshadowing of Jesus. You realize that? The author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross, which was arguably the worst thing to ever happen. In human history, the Son of God murdered by sinful men. But he did it because he knew there was something so much better on the other side. On the other side of the cross was our salvation. This was the joy that was set before him. And so the author of Hebrews says that now, as we walk through difficult circumstances ourselves on this side of eternity... We may not always know what God is doing through these things. But here's what we do know. Because of the cross, no matter what bad things happen in our lives, God is using them for our good to set us up for something so much better. Sometimes he's setting us up for something better in this life. But he's always setting us up for something better in the life to come. Eternal life. And this is why so many people love Romans 8.28. Because it's probably the verse in the Bible that has offered the most comfort to suffering people who don't know why they're suffering. The message of Romans 8.28 is whatever you are going through, because of the gospel, God is going to use it for your good. That's good news, isn't it? It is good news. So with that, I'm going to sit down. Let's pray. Father, your goodness and your grace and your kindness and your mercy and your love are just unsearchable, unfathomable. God, thank you for the message of the gospel and that you willingly took the worst possible thing upon yourself so that we who are bad people could be showered with the best possible things that you have to offer, which is new life and your son and eternal life with you. God, thank you for that gospel message, and thank you that as a result of your grace in the gospel, God, no matter what we go through in this life, God, we we confess it's hard. Life is hard, and life is sometimes painful. But God, we thank you for the promise of Romans 8:28 that no matter what we may endure, we can know that you love us and that you're working it all out for our good in the end. Thank you, God, for your word. It's good and it's
3: true. I pray we trust it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.